The Tom Woods Show, episode 1298. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Men, if you want to dress for success, you want to look smart and well put together, not baggy and clueless. No more off-the-rack suits for you. This week, my listeners can get any premium Indochino made-to-measure suit for just $359 at Indochino.com when entering Woods at checkout. Hi, everybody. Tom Woods here. Of course, you know about the passing of former President George H.W. Bush. So I thought we got to get a quick episode out there, kind of a thumbnail sketch of the Bush presidency in particular and uh, what our assessment of it might be. And joining me to do that is Dan McCarthy, whom we've spoken to a number of times in the past because Dan has an article in The Spectator on this precise topic. And that's what made me think, all right, Dan's the guy. But Dan, as you'll recall, is editor-at-large of The American Conservative, and he is currently the editor of Modern Age, a venerable conservative quarterly that you can visit at modernagejournal.com. Dan, welcome back. Thanks, Tom. Glad to be here. I was wondering what I was going to do with George H.W. Bush because I thought I've got to talk about him and I'd like to talk to somebody I you know, respect about him. And then your column, your spectator column appeared. So I'll link to that at tomwoods.com slash 1298. Let's start off. I think I want to focus primarily on his presidency because you could get really into the weeds on a lot of the other stuff in his life. But what most people are focusing on are the presidential years and his temperament and his his at least publicly his genial nature and obviously this is all meant to be an implicit contrast with Trump. I mean it's like everybody who dies now is going to be an implied contrast with Trump. So let's start with this whole phenomenon of I mean I suppose when presidents have died uh, you know the country has made note of it but I just you know as I think back when Herbert Hoover died, when was there a day of mourning? I, I don't know how they used to handle it, but it, it does seem to me like the cult of personality and this kind of response to the passing of these presidents has gotten worse. Oh, you're absolutely right. It has. I remember my father's astonishment about a decade ago after uh, Gerald Ford died, and you had this sort of week of national mourning for Gerald Ford, of all people. You know, this was a president who was, you know, a national mediocrity who wound up. Um, being a you know sort of uneventful figure after Watergate, which was you know something to be said, I guess. But Gerald Ford was uh, hardly the sort of person you would expect to have these kind of orgy of uh, you know sort of artificial grief on behalf of. And yet, in fact, it did have you know this uh, really excessive amount of uh, fawning over the Gerald Ford legacy. And now we're going to get it with uh, George H. W. Bush, not only on account of Bush himself, but as you've mentioned. Uh, with the idea of making a contrast between Bush and uh, President Trump and claiming that everything people don't like about uh, Donald Trump is somehow uh, reversed and um, sort of great and honorable about George H.W., when in fact, I mean, George H.W.'s record as president was absolutely disastrous and was something that I would think people across the political spectrum would look at and say, man, you know, this was one of the worst presidents we've had, you know, in the latter half of the 20th century. So let's say something about that. One thing that struck me in your column, I had suspected this was true, but I hadn't really known for sure, was that when you know former Vice President Bush became President Bush, he cleaned house, got rid of Reagan appointees, and as you put it in your column, the criterion was, did you support me over Reagan in the 
primary contest of 1980. You know, George H.W. Bush had a reputation for being very vicious towards conservatives. And you saw this on the campaign trail in 1980 when he you know, mocked Reagan's ideas for tax cutting and uh, reducing government as voodoo economics. And then uh, when George H.W. Bush became president after the 1988 election, he basically cleaned house. And uh, he said, you know, anyone in the uh, Reagan administration who had supported Reagan in 1980 over himself was not going to be welcomed into the George H.W. Bush administration. So it was really quite an ideological sweep designed to get rid of Reagan loyalists and to get rid of people who were more philosophically conservative and to have, you know, sort of personal loyalists to Bush put in office instead. And, you know, one of the things people always claim about Donald Trump is this idea that supposedly he values, you know, personal loyalty over service to the Republican Party or principle or whatever. Uh, But that was, uh, you know, very much true in spades with George H.W. Bush, who was uh, all about, you know, whether people had supported him and not whether they had been sort of good staffers in the Reagan administration. Now, in terms of domestic policy, of course, there are going to be some things that libertarians might object to, but that I think the general public more or less would support, like the Americans with Disabilities Act or the Civil Rights Act, uh, things of that nature. The major domestic thing I think most people remember is that he went back on his pledge not to raise taxes. But even there, I think a lot of the mainstream people would say, well, that just shows how responsible he was, that he was willing to take a political risk and and this and that. So domestically, how can you make the case that this was just a disaster and everybody on either side should agree he was terrible? You know, it was the point in time where questions about American competitiveness in the world had first become really extremely pressing. And you saw this in the 1992 campaign where both Pat Buchanan challenging George H.W. Bush in the Republican primaries and then uh, Ross Perot running as a uh, independent candidate in the uh, you know 1992 election, both of them challenged George H.W. Bush's record on jobs. And it was clear that uh, America was facing some rather serious uh, competitive difficulties at the time, uh, in particular with the Japanese being extremely successful in terms of sort of replacing American industry with uh, their own industry. So George H.W. Bush, uh, you know, he had had a recession which ended sometime in 1991 officially, but nonetheless carried over with a sort of feeling of national malaise into 1992. His administration was just known for American industry falling behind and for the economy being rather lackluster and Americans losing a lot of hope and uh, winding up not only having some doubts about George H.W. Bush and the Republican primaries and looking at you know a, a wildcard candidate like Ross Perot in the general election, but then, of course, ultimately choosing Bill Clinton, who ran as a populist, against George H.W. Bush uh, that November. Well, now, why don't we turn to foreign policy? Because I think here is where a lot of people give him high marks. They say he presided over the dissolution of the Soviet Union in a mature way and this and that. Then they'll also point to the international coalition that he brought together that culminated in the first Persian Gulf War. And in fact, maybe that's really where we ought to speak because I recall in those days, I was a freshman in college and I remember reading Pat Buchanan saying, this is a terrible idea. We shouldn't be waging this war. And Dan, I could not understand for the life of me why Pat was not on board. I could not understand that. I was fully on board because that's what you do in these situations. And it ended up being very swift and it was over in, well, not very many days. And at one point, 
Bush's approval rating shot up to somewhere around 91%, almost unheard of levels. Then, of course, he went on to lose the lose re-election. What can you say about that conflict? Well, first of all, the ironic thing is George H.W. Bush and his administration almost, you know, in some ways uh, are responsible for Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait in the first place. About one week before Saddam Hussein seized Kuwait, Saddam Hussein himself and his uh, foreign minister, Tariq Aziz, had a meeting with George H.W. Bush's ambassador to Iraq. And it's kind of funny to think, but at the time in 1990, Iraq was not yet a pariah state. It was obviously a state that uh, the U.S. had many reservations about, but we had formal diplomatic uh, relations with them. We had an ambassador and uh, her name was April Glasby. Uh, she met with Saddam Hussein and Tariq Aziz, and she was asked what the United States would do about the fact that Kuwait and Iraq had this border dispute and that there was a possibility of unpleasantness developing as a result of this border dispute. And April Glasby basically led Saddam Hussein to believe, and there are various iterations of exactly what she said, but it seems pretty clear that she said something along these lines. Uh, she told him that basically the border dispute was nothing, uh, no part of the United States' business, and uh, that the U.S. was not going to you know, sort of pick sides or get involved in a, uh, a dispute between Arabs. Well, Saddam Hussein seems to have taken that as a green light to go ahead and uh, invade Kuwait without having to worry about consequences from the United States. So it's ironic because, uh, you know, George W. Bush wound up being a president who was quite willing to use force. He used it in Panama. He used it in um, Iraq. And in fact, he was the one who, uh, you know, inserted troops into Somalia at the end of his administration as well, which turned out to be uh, a terrible disaster a few months later. But ironically enough, I mean, if, if Bush had been tougher and clearer right there in the summer of 1990, he might actually have deterred Saddam Hussein simply by telling him, look, yes, the United States would take it as an act of uh, you know, aggression that the United States would want to police if you go ahead and uh, you know, annex Kuwait or do anything uh, you know, sort of aggressive towards this little state. So you know, in, uh, one of the ironies here is that uh, George W. Bush bears a certain measure of responsibility for the fact that the uh, war occurred in the first place. And then the war itself, yes, it was over very quickly. It was a uh, kind of splendid military victory in a, you know, a few days' time and wound up sort of remoralizing America, restoring morale after um, the sort of long years hangover after the Vietnam War. But um, you know, the long-term repercussions of our uh, Persian Gulf War wound up being very troubling. George H.W. Bush seemed to have thought that um, there would be some uprising against Saddam Hussein in Iraq itself as a result of Hussein losing the Persian Gulf War. Once again, there were people who, um, so-called swamp Arabs, uh, tribal groups in Iraq, who um, took encouragement from George H.W. Bush and did in fact rise up against Saddam Hussein, but there was no support for them. And so they wound up being slaughtered by Saddam Hussein. So on the one hand, George H.W. Bush was again sending mixed signals that got people killed. And on the other hand, he, he wound up, you know, imposing a, a no-fly zone over Iraq and just basically creating a sort of prolonged and festering situation after what had appeared to be a, a splendid victory. I mean, it, it was, he couldn't let go of the sort of Iraq uh, situation even after Kuwait had been freed from Saddam Hussein's clutches. So really, I mean, what appeared to be a, a splendid victory at the time wound up being something that got us deeper and deeper into Mideast politics uh, and would have you know, enormous consequences over the next decade and beyond. I've been reading some commentary because it's been so long since that war. I haven't given it much thought since then, but I'm remembering some of the details now 
about the way it was waged, and there are a lot of complaints that the civilian infrastructure was destroyed and that people arguing this could not have been by accident and hospitals leveled and shelters and part of the warp and woof of civilian life. Uh, so this is not uh, – I mean, we were given the impression that it was incredibly surgical because we had these super precise weapons and things of that nature. And then when you went and looked, it turned out to be uh, much more gruesome. But then I also remember – again, I was a college kid at the time. The or I, I don't remember actually when the uh, operation against Noriega was. Maybe I wasn't in college yet. Maybe that was 89. I don't remember the exact year. But when he went after uh, Manuel Noriega in Panama, okay, even there, there were neighborhoods that were leveled, a lot of civilians killed, uh, several thousand, I think. And it's not really, I mean, to this day, was anybody threatened by Panama? I mean, I can't even remember what the rationale for that was. Yeah, I think that war was a uh, sort of outgrowth of the war on drugs. Basically, George H.W. Bush set the precedence for this idea of the United States as the world's policeman and global cop after the end of the Cold War. Uh, you saw that in Panama. You saw that to a much greater extent in the first Gulf War. And then again, you had this ultimately you know, disastrous and nationally humiliating intervention in Somalia, which got started at the very end of George H.W.'s term in office. In fact, George H.W. Bush had already lost the 1992 election when he decided it was time to send U.S. peacekeepers into basically what was a, a civil war in uh, in Somalia. So uh, the whole you know interventionist 1990s, the whole course of U.S. foreign policy in the 1990s and then into the post 9/11 era with his son, all of that was set by the precedents George H.W. Bush established at a time when Americans really should have been enjoying a peace dividend at the end of the Cold War, not just in terms of our finances, not just in terms of not having to spend as much. Uh, having to, uh, you know, sort of compete with the Soviet Union, which, of course, wasn't really in much of a condition to compete anyway at the end of the, the Cold War there. But rather, uh, we should have enjoyed a peace dividend in terms of having actual peace and having fewer wars and having, uh, you know, the ability to come home and, and play less of a uh, sort of interventionist role in the world and becoming a, uh, a normal country again, as uh, Gene Kirkpatrick had said. And instead, we did exactly the opposite. We expanded our uh, ambitions around the world rather than adopting a more modest and small-R Republican sort of strategy. And that was entirely on George H.W. Bush. He was someone who really, um, after the end of the Cold War, decided on a different and even more grandiose uh, American project. Dan, I'm going to lighten the conversation for just a minute with a sponsored message. Some people know about my personal crusade against the untucked shirt. It's the worst trend of the past 500 years, but it's me against the world on that one. One thing you've got to agree with me on, though, is that every man looks better and feels more confident when he puts on a suit. So if you're going to go to all that trouble, that suit better fit you just right. How many libertarians do we run into wearing these baggy suits and it's just embarrassing? There's no longer any excuse for that, especially when made-to-measure suits are available at such great prices. So that's why I recommend Indochino, North America's leading made-to-measure menswear company. Now, I'm very conservative, but you'll find a wide selection of high-quality fabrics and colors to choose from and the option to personalize the details, including your lapel, lining, pockets, buttons, and writing your own monogram. And the process, whether in person or online, couldn't be easier. This week, my listeners can get any premium Indochino suit for just $359 at Indochino.com when entering Woods at checkout. That's 50% off the regular price for a made-to-measure premium suit. Plus, shipping is free. 
That's Indochino.com, promo code WOODS, for any premium suit for just $359 and free shipping. That's an incredible deal for a premium made-to-measure suit. Now, initially, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, the military budget does go down a bit. But this seems to be only a blip if you look at the overall trend. And now it's just, I mean, it's like it's like we've got 10 Soviet unions that we're facing. But initially there was that blip. But you know from Bush's outlook on the world, there's no way that that was, that they weren't going to find some type of new mission to undertake. Now, he apparently in his old age voted for, or he says he voted for Hillary over Trump, didn't he? You know, I forget whether I think you're right. He did say he actually voted for Hillary over Trump. Uh, it's it's the whole Bush family was, you know, putting out various vague uh, comments about the election throughout the uh, 2016 season. But I think you're exactly right. I think eventually he did uh, come right out and say that he voted for Clinton. He certainly implied it. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm reading on the BBC. Well, see, now now we're saying, OK, George W. Bush didn't vote for Trump or Clinton, but George Bush Sr. calls Trump a blowhard and voted for Clinton is what we read on the BBC. So at the very least, we have a story that went out with that, as far as I can see, without a correction. So let's I mean, I can't get completely inside the head of, of that man, but I think even though he did wage a tough fight against Bill Clinton in 92, I, I think he he was basically sincere in being friendly with uh, his his successors after that. And uh, I think he does feel more at home with Hillary than with Trump. And I wonder if that's that in general is worthy of comment. Well, I think it is. Donald Trump is in many respects uh, the anti-Bush, whether we're talking about George H.W. Bush or George W. And um, I think that's significant. Basically, Donald Trump who was already, you know, sort of certainly politically aware in 1989. It was very much, uh, you know, thinking about the crime wave that the country was seeing in 1989. You know, that was the height of the crack epidemic. And he was also thinking about uh, things like the U.S. Uh, trade battle with Japan. Donald Trump was in part formed politically by the experience of the George H.W. Bush years. And he saw those years as being, again, a, a kind of national humiliation and a, uh, a defeat and a... Um, a movement in the wrong direction, you know, even despite the apparent success of the uh, first Persian Gulf War there. So Donald Trump, quite naturally, I think, is seen as being uh, something of a counterpoint to George H.W. Bush. And the problem is that many pundits are going out there and claiming that George H.W. Bush was the success story, was the you know sort of dignified adult, and Donald J. Trump is the uh, sort of antithesis of everything that's meant to be presidential. But in fact, it was the failures of George H.W. Bush which have given rise to the need for someone like Donald Trump in the first place, that he is the correction to the uh, sort of false path that George H.W. Bush and then, of course, his son uh, set the entire country upon. Well, as I say, we're focusing today on his uh, presidential years, so I wouldn't talk so much about the vice presidential stuff just to keep this narrowly focused. But but still, when he was president, he carried out some pardons of people involved in the Iran-Contra affair, which had occurred while he was vice president. Do you have an opinion on the Iran-Contra affair and on the pardons? Well, you know, the Iran-Contra thing is uh, quite a big mess. Arms for hostages, question of how much awareness Ronald Reagan had about it. And certainly there were a lot of cowboys in the uh, the Reagan administration who were doing things that went beyond the president's uh, approval. 
So, uh, you know, I don't want to get uh, too deeply into the ins and outs of it. In general, I think, you know, these sorts of pardons after a scandal are to be expected. You saw them with Bill Clinton at the end of his administration pardoning uh, a variety of whitewater figures and others. So I just find it hard to get worked up about uh, these things. They are pretty much predictable. Of course, you know, the, the sort of archetype for the whole thing was uh, Gerald Ford's pardon of Nixon. And that pardon, I would say, actually was uh, was important and did serve a, a good purpose. Whether these other pardons of Iran-Contra figures and later, you know, sort of figures involved in other scandals under other presidents, that's a different question. Certainly one of the things that George H.W. Bush accomplished issuing these pardons, however, was to partially rehabilitate uh, certain neoconservative figures. You know, Admiral Poindexter, who was one of the pardonees, I believe, returns during the George W. Bush years and is someone who is uh, almost put in charge or briefly put in charge of a program called Total Information Awareness. You know, you have uh, a number of other rather dubious figures who wind up being pardoned by George H.W. Bush so that they can come back in uh, various ways uh, in later administrations and, and do harm. So in that sense, quite apart from Iran-Contra itself, it was, uh, you know, troubling to have some of these figures rehabilitated. Uh, we might also point out, because it'd be impossible on a libertarian podcast not to say something about the war on drugs, that September 5th, 1989, that's the first the day of the first televised national address uh, Bush gives. He says that drugs are the greatest domestic threat facing our nation today. And he approved, among a, a number of other things, a program that basically initiated what we've started to see picking up steam in recent years, which is equipping local police departments and state police departments with military-grade equipment in order to carry out uh, drug raids. So we have that. And even there, if we just want to be pure utilitarians, the results have not been impressive The in terms of drug use, obviously. But that, I mean, Nixon also has a hand in that. I mean, they all have a hand in that. But there's another thing that I'm going to give a speech and we're going to have, we're going to crack some more skulls and then we'll see what happens. And it um, it doesn't go anywhere. Yeah, Bush wound up escalating pretty much any bad policy you can think of in the federal government, whether it's, you know, raising taxes, whether it's, you know, putting an undue burden on businesses through the Americans with Disabilities Act, whether it's escalating the drug war, or whether it's, you know, at the end of the Cold War, instead of coming home, increasing our involvement in various conflicts and um, sort of morasses uh, all around the, the world. George H.W. Bush was a, you know, a, a very strong statist. He was an interventionist uh, on just about every level, and the country has paid a terrible price for that. All right, Dan, I'm going to let you run. I know we're tight on time today, but I did want to get at least a thumbnail sketch, George W. Bush, or H.W. Bush, I beg your pardon, episode out there. And then this week, I'm also talking to David Stockman by pure coincidence. And so when I have him on, I would be very interested in his views of George H.W. Bush because they obviously knew each other with uh, Stockman being in the Reagan White House and then having been in the U.S. Congress before that. So I'm, I think I'll get some interesting perspective on that also. But tell me what's going on these days with Modern Age, which is a journal more people need to know about. It's been around for, I guess, over 60 years now? That's correct. So, I mean, a lot of my uh, sort of casual week-to-week -week writing can be found uh, in the spectator.us, which is a uh, uh, an American website that's been launched by the uh, British uh, publication, The Spectator. Uh, and again, its URL is spectator.us. But my sort of most long form and thoughtful writing, and uh, also the journal I edit, 
is to be found uh, in uh, Modern Age, which uh, was a uh, publication founded by Russell Kirk back in uh, the 1950s. And uh, today you can get it in print and you can get it also get it online at uh, modernagejournal.com. And right now we actually have a sale going on where you can subscribe to the journal for two full years, which gives you print and digital copies of the, uh, the journal for only $27. So I really highly recommend as a Christmas gift, uh, whether for listeners themselves or for their friends, uh, subscribing to Modern Age uh, you know, while this offer is good. So uh, for just $27, you can get uh, two years of the journal, both print and uh, web. And uh, you can visit uh, the website, www.modernagejournal.com and uh, you know, have a sampling of our articles. And in fact, uh, see my latest uh, long form essay there uh, on the uh, Clash of Civilizations, uh, Samuel Huntington's thesis from uh, 25 years ago and sort of paying tribute to the great Samuel Huntington uh, 10 years after his death. All right, well, that all sounds very interesting. I, I'm certainly going to check out that article of yours. And as I've said, your column on George H.W. Bush in The Spectator, I'll link to on the show notes page, tomwoods.com slash 1298. All right, I'll let you run, Dan. Thanks so much for being here today. Thanks, Tom. All right, folks, that'll do it. Now, tomorrow, David Stockman joins me, and he will certainly have some things to say also about George H.W. Bush because Stockman served in the Reagan-Bush administration as a budget director for several years so we'll definitely get his uh, insights and anecdotes about uh, George H.W. Bush and what his assessment of the man is. And then beyond that, we're going to obviously be talking some economics. So you'll definitely, definitely not want to miss that. So make sure you have subscribed to the show over at iTunes. It, it, it warms my heart when people subscribe over at iTunes. And it's very easy to do that. It's just tomwoods.com slash iTunes. Also, I'm cooking up another free ebook for you. And I want to make sure first that you have one of the recent ones that I put out because it's a great example of how much information is packed into these. You could read 500-page books and half of it's fluff or detail you don't need. This is just, boom, all the information you need to be really knowledgeable on a topic and to be able to hold your own in a debate with anybody. So the one I recommend right now is my ebook, The Deregulation Boogeyman. Oh, deregulation caused all kinds of problems for us and gave us the financial crisis of 2008. You hear that over and over and over. You got to have an answer for that. Well, man, are you going to have answers for that? And you won't have to go through 800 pages looking for them because I've narrowed it all down. I've, I've slimmed it down to the, the absolute knowledge that you need. And it's going to be knowledge that none of your friends have. They, they haven't been exposed to it because they hear only one perspective all the time. So how do you get that ebook? You go to regulationmyths.com and you get it right there. Regulationmyths.com is where you go. All right, David Stockman tomorrow, everybody. See you soon. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit tomwoods.com to subscribe to the show for free and we'll see you next time.